Well, let me begin by asking you a question again this morning. Has the Lord ever asked you to step out on a limb of faith, to do something risky, something that could have significant implications for you, maybe even for your family? Going out on a limb can be kind of an anxiety-producing experience because we have no idea of the outcome. That's why they call it a step of faith, right? Limbs can be a little scary. It seems so much more secure to be standing on the thick branch that we have become accustomed to, right? With our back leaning against the tree trunk. Life next to that tree trunk has been good to us. The branch we've been sitting on is strong and reliable and time-tested. Compared to our branch, that limb of faith appears so thin. I mean, seriously, will it, will it really support us if we step out there? Maybe you've been out on that limb of faith before. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. Or maybe God is calling you out onto a limb of faith right now. Maybe you're in the midst of a decision that's requiring a huge step of faith. And maybe you feel the internal struggle. Do I keep my arms wrapped tightly around the trunk of this tree? Or do I let go and trust God with each step out onto that limb? That's the internal struggle. This morning, we're continuing on in our Christmas series called An Angel Announced Arrival. And we're retelling the story of Jesus' birth through the five appearances of angels in the story and the messages that they heralded. In the first week, an angel named Gabriel visited a man named Zechariah. Zechariah is an older gentleman who served as a priest in the temple. And on the day of Gabriel's visit, Zechariah had been selected to burn incense that day. And that incense represented the prayers of God's people ascending to heaven. And the angel Gabriel appeared announcing that Zechariah's prayers for a child were about to be answered. Zechariah's wife Elizabeth would bear him a son. And they were to name him John. And John would grow to be great in the sight of the Lord. And he would become the forerunner or the preparer of the way for the Messiah. Last week, we looked at Gabriel's visit to Mary. Now, six months had passed since Gabriel visited Zechariah. But now, God had sent Gabriel with a message to Mary. Mary was a young virgin living in the remote town of Nazareth. And Gabriel had told Mary, you have found favor with God. And as a result, she would conceive a child with the help of the Holy Spirit. This pregnancy would occur before she was married to Joseph, but it would be a boy, and she was to name him Jesus. And her baby Jesus would be the long-awaited Messiah. And you might remember Mary's response. It was a response of tremendous faith. Remember her words? I am a servant of the Lord. May it happen to me just as you have said. So the text tells us that she spent the next three months in the home of her relatives, Zechariah and Elizabeth. But at the end of those three months, she headed back to Nazareth, back to Joseph, not knowing how he would respond to her pregnancy. 
This morning, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. And in this message, we are going to consider how Joseph received the news from Mary. Uh, We are going to look at the message that he received from the angel that visits him. And we're going to look at the choices that he eventually made. And for teaching purposes, I have divided Matthew's account into four acts with an intermission, like the acts of a play, simply as a way to organize the message and try to create kind of an easy-to-follow flow. So, having said all of that, let's dive in to Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Act 1 is found in verse 18, and I'm calling this Mary's predicament. Mary's predicament. Verse 18 reads like this. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. So, Mary had left the home of Zechariah and Elizabeth and had begun the long journey north back towards Nazareth. And I would imagine that with each step, her concern for Joseph's reaction intensified. Not to mention what the reactions might be of her family, friends, and the townspeople of Nazareth. Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. And as she walked, I think she remembered months back when her parents and Joseph's parents had suggested their marriage and then brought these two young people together so that they could spend some time to get acquainted and the parents could decide whether or not they approved of the marriage. Joseph was a good man, a godly man, righteous, full of integrity. They grew fond of each other and after a time, the parents gave their approval and a formal agreement was entered into, including the customary exchange of a dowry. Entering this betrothal period was an exciting time for Mary and Joseph. The betrothal bond between them was permanent and sacred. The betrothal could only be broken by a certificate of divorce. And now, in this betrothal period, they were regarded as husband and wife, but they were still unmarried, so marital intimacy was not allowed. At this point, Joseph was back home now, building an addition onto his father's home that would be living quarters for him and Mary. And when when he had prepared a place for them, he would come back for her and take her to be with him. And the wedding celebration would begin. They had talked and planned and dreamed and prayed about that day. The length of the betrothal period was customarily about a year. That was usually long enough for a man to prepare living quarters for him and his bride. It was also long enough for the woman to establish that she was not pregnant prior to the wedding. But now, as Mary made her way back to Nazareth... Her pre-wedding excitement was clouded by anxiety. She was pregnant and probably showing at this point. She had no choice but to face Joseph. What would he think? What would he say? What would he do? She tried to explain it to him. My guess is she was trying to explain it through tears. 
It's not what you think, Joseph. You see, there was this angel, and his name was Gabriel. And he told me that I had found favor with God and that I would be with child and give birth to a son. He told me I was supposed to name him Jesus, and he made it sound like this was going to happen right away. And I told him I didn't understand how, since you and I were only betrothed. We weren't even married yet. And I'd never been intimate with a man. And I still haven't, Joseph, I promise. I still haven't. But the angel said that the Holy Spirit would come upon me and the power of the Most High would overshadow me. I don't even know what that means exactly, but he said the child to be born would be holy and would be called the Son of God. I, I, don't, I don't know how to explain all of this to you, Joseph, but that's exactly what happened. You do believe me, don't you? You do believe me, right? But she could tell Joseph wasn't buying it. And honestly, she couldn't blame him. The whole thing sounded really far-fetched, crazy, actually. She faced the very real possibility that no one else would believe her and that everyone she loved and depended on would turn away from her. This is Mary's predicament. As scary as all of this may have seemed to her, she would have to leave it now in the Lord's hands. This really was the work of God. And if Joseph was going to be convinced, well, God would have to do the convincing because Joseph wasn't buying it from Mary. Now look at verse 19. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. This is what I call Act 2, Joseph's plan. This is Joseph's plan. Now, Matthew doesn't record the conversation that actually occurred between Mary and Joseph that day, but it is safe for us to assume that Mary would have done her very best to explain as clearly as she knew how all that the angel had told her, and that Joseph would have asked a myriad of questions just trying to wrap his mind around what Mary was telling him. We talked last week about the tough spot that Mary was in, but Matthew reminds us in this passage that Joseph was in a tough spot too. Mary was the woman he had come to love, and he intended to spend the rest of his life with her. He planned to have a family with her and raise their children together, but now this. She was pregnant and the baby wasn't his. Her explanation sounded, well, impossible, actually. To any thinking person, her pregnancy could only mean one thing. She had been with someone else. And that thought devastated Joseph's heart and mind. I mean, stop and think about this for a minute. Put yourself in his place and breathe the air that he is breathing right now. What would you think? What would you do? Well, Joseph began to weigh his options, and there weren't many. If he married her, many would perceive his marriage to her to be an admission of his guilt that he had gotten her pregnant. And that would be devastating to his reputation in the community. It wasn't his baby. And understandably, he wanted to protect 
his integrity. There was another option, number two. If he divorced her publicly, she would be subjected to humiliation and possibly death, as the law of Moses called for the death of both people in an adulterous relationship. But being a righteous man and a godly man, he certainly wanted to show compassion if he could. You know, it was customary on a certificate of divorce to state the reasons for the divorce. Customary, but not required. So Joseph had a third option. He could divorce her quietly, meaning he would not state on the certificate what the actual reasons were. And this would help Mary to avoid the humiliation of a scandal. So Joseph took time and he thought all of this through. But he ultimately couldn't accept Mary's innocence. Her story just wasn't believable. But he also wasn't interested in humiliating her or endangering her. Verse 19 tells us he decided on a plan. He would divorce her, but he would do so quietly. Instead of making a public spectacle of her, he chose a course of action that would spare her as much humiliation as possible. She will have to, she'll have enough to face with the pregnancy. There's no need to heap on any further embarrassment for her. This seemed, in Joseph's mind, to be the most honorable choice. Verse 20 and 21 usher us into Act 3, which I've called the angel's proclamation. Look at these verses with me. It says, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. I have several observations to make for you out of this section. First, verse 20 says, after he had considered this. I like that because it reveals that Joseph didn't rush into this decision. Being a righteous man and wanting to do what was honorable for Mary, Joseph would have taken whatever time was needed to pray and seek counsel from wise and trusted people and to reflect upon what he understood of God's word and God's character. And then he would have taken all of that and made the best decision that he could, given the circumstances. And as Joseph prepared to move forward with this decision, God intervened. God sent an angel to Joseph in a dream, not only to confirm Mary's explanation, but also to direct Joseph's next steps. And in that moment, in that moment, God called Joseph to let go of the tree trunk and step out on a limb of faith. Look at this with me. The angel called Joseph. He referred to him as Joseph, the son of David. This signified that Joseph would have a vital role to play in all of this. The angel explained, that Joseph was to take Mary as his wife, for it had been prophesied that her child, the Messiah, would be in the royal line of David. We find that in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. 
Now, because Joseph is himself a son of David, he could establish the child's royal lineage through marriage. Do you see? Joseph's marriage to Mary was essential in establishing Jesus' lineage. Joseph had a vital part to play in all of this. Further, the angel said to Joseph, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid to marry her. Don't worry about the social repercussions. There would be stormy waters. Without a doubt, you are going to face a storm. But God will give you wisdom and courage to navigate through. And Joseph was to take Mary home as his wife. Now, of course, Mary was already considered Joseph's wife because they were betrothed. But the angel was specifically telling Joseph that instead of divorcing Mary, he needed to complete the marriage process and take her home as his wife. As crazy as it may have sounded to Joseph and to others and Mary's family, Mary had told the truth. The angel confirmed to Joseph that the child conceived in her was from the Holy Spirit. Mary had not sinned against or betrayed Joseph God himself had caused this pregnancy. And the child was to be called Jesus, for he would save his people from their sins. And that phrase, he would save his people from their sins, is also important. And Mary or Matthew is using it very intentionally. Very intentionally. And here's why. Let me tell you why. The Jews in Jesus' day kind of that first century Palestine. The Jews believed that when the Messiah and his kingdom arrived, it would come with apocalyptic power and judgment, shattering the godless nations around Israel. They expected the Messiah to come with worldwide dominion and authority, and his victory was to be swift and certain, even cataclysmic, sweeping away Israel's enemies, beginning with the Romans. And at the end of the day, the nation of Israel would find themselves again at the top of the food chain where they belonged because they were, after all, the chosen people of God, right? But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew's gospel, from its earliest pages, tried to correct these Jewish misconceptions about the Messiah explaining that Jesus, the promised Messiah, had not come initially to save his people from the Romans or from tyranny or oppression. And he, would not, he had not come to set up Israel in a position of political power. Matthew instead kind of emphasizes that Jesus would save his people from their sins. The angel's message reminds us that the Messiah came first to provide spiritual freedom, not political and national freedom. But these preconceived ideas were pretty deeply entrenched in the Jewish belief system. And it helps us to understand why so many of the Jews refused to believe that Jesus could be the Messiah. He just didn't fit with their preconceived ideas. And as an aside, just as a side note, Jesus would later explain, there is a second coming, and it will be at that point that the Messiah will defeat his enemies and establish his kingdom on earth. That day will come. 
but that's for a later discussion. Now, before we move on to verse 22, I'd like to make two theological observations from the angel's message. So you ready for some theology 101? Of course we are. It'll be painless, I promise. So the angel says to Joseph, the baby conceived in Mary's womb is from the Holy Spirit. Do you remember also how Gabriel described it last week to Mary? He said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Theologically, this is what we call the incarnation. This is what we call the incarnation. The incarnation is the word we use to describe the second person of the Trinity, the second person of the Godhead, taking on flesh, becoming human. The Gospel of John says it this way, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the incarnation. Now, Matthew doesn't describe for us kind of the supernatural biological process that the Holy Spirit performed in Mary's womb. That's something you'll have to ask about someday when you get to heaven, and he can explain it to you. What we do know, what we do know, is that the Holy Spirit knit Jesus together in his mother's womb, forming his inward parts, combining the full divinity of the second person of the Trinity with full humanity, creating a fearfully and wonderfully made human baby. That's the incarnation, friends. The Word became flesh. My second theological observation is this. Being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin helps us understand more fully Jesus' sinlessness. Let me say that again. Being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin helps us to understand more fully Jesus' sinlessness. Let me explain what I mean. Every single human being has a corrupt moral nature. It's what we call the sin nature. And we have it because of Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. And Adam's sin nature was then passed on to every child that he fathered. And every father since Adam has passed on the sin nature to all of their children. Every child inherits the nature of their father. Every child inherits the nature of their father. A sin nature that traces all the way back to Adam. The fact that Jesus did not have a human father means that a sin nature was not passed on to him. Does that make sense? And let's go one step further with this. Mary's pregnancy was the result of the power of the Most High overshadowing her. This means that Jesus inherited the nature of his Father, his heavenly Father, the Most High. This helps us to understand Jesus' sinlessness. 
Jesus had not inherited the guilt and the sin nature of Adam. Therefore, he had no guilt from original sin. And because he lived a sinless life, he had no guilt from personally committed sin. And because of that, Jesus was uniquely qualified to serve as the sinless lamb of God. Someday paying the penalty for the sins of the world. Saving his people from their sins. You see? Now, at this point in the text, Matthew creates for us what I call an intermission of sorts by turning his reader's attention to a prophecy about the Messiah found in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Look at this with me. It's in verse 22 and 23. Matthew says, All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, Matthew used this prophecy in an interesting way, what I think is kind of a cool way. But it was something I didn't fully appreciate until I studied the passage this week. So let me take just a minute and explain to you what Matthew is doing with this text. The prophecy that's quoted here in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, was delivered by a prophet named Isaiah 740 years before the birth of Christ. Try to wrap your head around that. A prophecy 740 years old was going to come true at the birth of Christ. When Isaiah delivered this prophecy 740 years ago, he did it during the reign of a king named Ahaz, who was king of Judah at the time. Remember, Israel had been divided, Judah as the southern kingdom, Israel as the northern kingdom. And the land of Judah, the southern kingdom, was being threatened by an invasion of the combined armies of Israel, the northern nation, and another country named Syria, which was just to the north of Israel. Ahaz was understandably frightened. What was he going to do? But instead of turning to the Lord for help, he decided to call for aid from another country named Assyria. And Assyria is most commonly associated with the city of Nineveh. Those were the Assyrians. So Ahaz wants to turn to another country for help. So God sends the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz, and the prophet says, Ahaz, look to God for help rather than to men. And he invites Ahaz to ask God for a sign. You know, a sign that would confirm that God really would help him if he asked. In a way, God was inviting Ahaz to leave the security of the tree trunk and step out on a limb of faith and trust in God alone to defend his his kingdom. But Ahaz refused. He chose instead to rely on human help. The prophet responded that in spite of the king's obstinance, God would still intervene, even though Ahaz didn't ask. God would intervene, and the Lord himself would give a sign guaranteeing that the land would be delivered. And the sign would be that a virgin or a young woman would have a son. And before that son would reach the age of knowing right from wrong, God would intervene and spare the land from these two enemy nations. So the prophecy that Isaiah gave was originally given to guarantee King Ahaz that his kingdom would be delivered from danger and that the deliverance would come shortly. 
Now, fast forward 740 years, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, Matthew begins to recognize that there is a double fulfillment to this prophecy, a double fulfillment. What that means is this. There was an initial or first fulfillment 740 years ago in the days of Isaiah, certainly. But, but, there was also a second fulfillment now at the birth of Jesus. And this second fulfillment was far more literal and far more complete than the first. Mary, who was not just a young girl, but a virgin in the truest sense of the word, was now pregnant with child and would give birth to a son, and they would call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And here's the key. Don't miss this. Here's the key. The prophet Isaiah had originally meant the name Emmanuel to signify that God was with Judah, that God was for her, that God... It was a figurative uh, expression, meaning that God would support Judah. God would defend Judah. God is with us, Isaiah had said. But Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses this name in a much more literal sense. Because in this little baby Jesus, God is with us literally. Full divinity is united with full humanity. God with us. The word became flesh. It's the incarnation. Do you see it? Matthew is saying Isaiah predicted the incarnation and the coming together of a fully divine nature and a fully human nature. Okay, so as we return now to the story, let me pause and ask you a question. If you were Joseph... How would you have responded to all of this? I mean, seriously. Picture yourself in his situation as a teenager. And what would you have done? Frankly, I think when I was 14 or 15 years old, my response would have registered somewhere between panic and terror. But look at Joseph's response. It's amazing. Verses 24 and 25. It says, when Joseph woke up, He did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. I labeled these final two verses Joseph's piety. Joseph's piety. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel commanded. Now, Joseph had already shown himself to be a man of integrity and and compassion. He, He was righteous. We saw all of that in how he planned to spare Mary as much embarrassment as possible. So we already saw hints of this. But now the angel tells him to marry her. In a way, the angel is saying, finish the living quarters, Joseph, and when you're done, go marry that girl. Yeah, many people are going to think you got her pregnant. Others are going to think you're a chump, gullible for even believing the ridiculous story that she's telling you. But ignore the ridicule. Ignore the accusations. Be the man God is calling you to be, Joseph, and defend Mary's honor. Defend her honor, Joseph, and stand by her side. And in a few months, when the day arrives, you embrace that little baby as if it were your own. 
and true to his character. <laughs> I love this. True to his character. He did it. He did it. God called him to step out on a limb of faith. Do something that's contrary to all common sense. Do something that everybody else is going to laugh at and call you foolish for. But he did it. Joseph woke up from his dream, took Mary home as his wife, and he had no union with her until after the baby was born. And they named him Jesus, just as God had told them to do. Absolutely remarkable, friends. Remarkable. Joseph's response was courageous and full of faith. And you remember, remember Mary's response last week? Remember her words? I am the Lord's servant. May it happen to me just as you have said. Imagine, if you can, just imagine how the responses of those two kids must have pleased God. Imagine. Imagine the celebration that may have gone on in heaven. What a phenomenal pair these two are. In my mind, it is no wonder, no wonder the Lord chose them to be the parents of Jesus. No wonder. Now, before we close, let me see if I can just make a couple of points of application for you this morning. Again, I think there are several points in this passage. I'm just going to give you three. But first, first point of application is though Joseph believed Mary had sinned against him, he responded to her with compassion and mercy. Even though Joseph believed Mary had sinned against him, he responded to her with compassion and mercy. And again, this is a testimony to Joseph's character. It was within his power to divorce Mary in a very public way, shaming and humiliating her. And people around him would have supported him if he did it. But he didn't do it. He didn't. He treated her with compassion and mercy. Anyone in this room ever been wronged by someone in your life? Anyone here, maybe even these days, contemplating ways to get even with somebody who's hurt you? Romans 12.21 instructs us, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. If someone has wronged you, would you consider following Joseph's example instead? Instead of following kind of our own instinct, our own intuition, would you consider following Joseph's example? Instead of revenge, in what way could you show that person compassion? In what way could you show them mercy? Mercy means we withhold the judgment that is deserved. Can you show mercy? It's counterintuitive, friends, I know. And it's countercultural. But it would delight the heart of God if we would choose to respond in this way. For this is how God has responded to us. Second point of application. Are you willing to follow where God leads and go where he points, even if it costs you something? Are you willing to follow where God leads and go where he points, even if it costs you something? In his commentary, Chuck Swindoll reminds us that Mary and Joseph set aside their personal dreams in order to say yes to God. The rest of Nazareth didn't receive an angel visit. 
So Joseph would forever be thought of as a complete fool, an idiot. Not just for marrying her, but for even believing the ridiculous story in the first place. And Mary would endure the sting of false accusations and sideways glances and condescending sneers for many years to come, maybe the rest of her life. While participating in the most wonderful event in human history, they would suffer the consequences of being disbelieved. But they did it anyway. They did it anyway. And it wasn't just Mary and Joseph. Abraham was called to leave his family and his country and set out for, well, he didn't know where. God would reveal it to him when he got there, right? Just start walking, Abraham. Hosea was called to marry a prostitute, to be an object lesson about Israel's adultery. In Acts chapter 9, a disciple named Ananias is called by God to go and heal a blind man named Saul who was persecuting Christians and hauling them off to jail. Well, what would Saul do to Ananias when his sight came back? Friends, God is still in the business of calling us out onto the limb of faith. He's still doing it. Question is, are you willing to go? If God points in that direction, if that's where God leads, even if it is contrary to common sense, will you go? Even if it makes you look foolish in the eyes of the world, will you go? Even if it means sacrifice or pain, will you go? Christy and I had to ask ourselves that question about two years ago when the Lord asked me to step down from the pastor position I'd been in for 17 years. During those years, we had grown accustomed to a certain level of security and stability that came with that situation. That tree branch was pretty comfortable. But the Lord asked us to step out on a limb. And the Lord's leading was so clear, saying no would have felt like cosmic treason. I had no resume prepared, no job lined up, but I did have Christie's full support. I had Christie's full support. And I need you to hear me say this, especially if you're in the middle of a decision right now and you're married. Because God sent an angel to both Mary and Joseph, I believe God leads spouses in the same direction. So I would never have made the leap of faith that we did without Christie's full support. Never would have done it because I believe God leads spouses in the same direction. But Christie did feel the same leading as I did. And so we moved ahead, stepping out on the limb of faith together. Had no idea what would happen next. And over the next 18 months, we experienced God's guidance, provision, encouragement, and sustaining power in ways that we had never experienced before. And with such clarity. And when the time was right, God opened doors for us right here in Princeton. Now, I don't know if, when, how, why, or what God may be asking you to do. But Joseph can testify to this, friends, and so will Christy and I. The limb of faith may be gut-wrenchingly difficult, and your faith may be pushed and tested to the very limit, but God will sustain you. God will sustain you. Friends, listen. Our faith 
is never in the limb. It is in the God who called us out there. And that God will sustain you. He will. Third and finally, Jesus came to save people from their sins. Jesus came to save people from their sins. Here's the truth of the matter. We cannot save ourselves. No matter how good we think we are, we cannot eliminate our sin, our guilt, or the alienation from God that we now are under because of our sin. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus. And he didn't come to help people save themselves. He came to be our savior, to save us from the power and penalty of sin. He came to be your savior and mine. And if you've never surrendered your life to Christ, I would urge you to consider it this morning. Let go of the tree trunk of your self-sufficiency and step out on that limb of faith and trust God to do the saving work he promises to do. Simply admit and repent of your sin and your rebellion and turn to him in faith, trusting that his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead will satisfy completely God's judgment against you. The Bible says if we will confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And those first steps out onto that limb of faith could be the start for you of an adventure with God. And through that adventure, you will find Christ to be your savior, your sufficiency, your security, and your sustainer. You can trust him. So I want to urge you to take that step. Let's pray. And then the worship team is going to come and lead us in our final song. Oh, Heavenly Father. This passage of scripture, uh, it should stir us deeply because you're still calling people out onto a limb of faith. You're still calling us to do things in obedience to you that we don't fully understand just as you did that, that day with Joseph. God, I pray that you would stir in our hearts I pray that your spirit would be at work to give us the courage that we may not have, to give us the faith we may not have, and help us to take those steps. Help us to trust you. And God, I pray that that experience would be one where uh, we come to know you and experience you in new ways as our sustainer, as our security as our savior and support. God, I pray that you would be strong in the people of this church, that your activity in our life would be evident and it would be compelling and it would stir us to trust you and to love you and to take those steps when you ask us. And I pray that would be true in Jesus' name, amen.